Welcome to Meanwhile in Memphis, where New Memphis is celebrating our city by providing a weekly window into the ways Memphians are solving problems, looking forward, and successfully shaping the community. Hello, Memphis. Welcome to our weekly episode of Meanwhile in Memphis. This is a podcast brought to you by New Memphis. We are a local nonprofit that is working to make Memphis magnetic for great talent like you. Uh, We are working in the community every day to develop local leaders, to engage and connect local leaders, to hopefully connect to make uh, a better future for our city. So every week we are here both on WYXR, our new local FM station. Uh, We're also here as a podcast if you're listening to us uh, in your earpiece as you are walking around the world. Um, But every week we bring you a couple of guests who are folks that we're just really proud of in Memphis who are doing amazing work to push our city forward. So highlighting great organizations, innovative leaders, people who are visioning big for Memphis, dreaming big for the future of our city. So today in studio, we have a fabulous guest from the Brooks Museum of Art, Kathy Dumlau, who's the Director of Education and Interpretation. She's gonna give us an update on how things are going this year at the Brooks Museum. Later in the episode, you're gonna hear from Emily Neff, the Executive Director of the Memphis Brooks Museum of Art. Uh, Her TED Talk was published in 2016, and I think really uh, does an excellent job of showcasing why Memphis is lucky to have such an incredible arts institution like the Brooks Museum. So without further ado, let's bring in Kathy. All right, well, as promised, today's episode is hyper-focused on one of the absolute gems in the cultural crown of Memphis, the Brooks Museum. Uh, we are thrilled to have in the studio today with us Kathy Doomlau. Uh, she's going to talk a little bit. She's the Director of Education and Interpretation at the Memphis Brooks Museum of Art. So she's going to bring lots of great insights to what the Brooks is up to today, how you as an audience member can engage. I know, especially in this month where you've got, you know, kids out of school and family might, you know, hopefully safely coming to visit and you're just looking for ways to Get out in the community, enjoy not just the holidays, but uh, time together. I know the Brooks has a ton to offer. So she's going to give us lots of information about what is going on at the Brooks. And then uh, later on in this episode, we're going to hear from Emily Neff, who is the executive director of the Brooks Museum. Um, She did a TED Talk back in 2016, I believe. Um, And that TED Talk, I think, just showcases what the Brooks Museum of Art is doing here in Memphis. It's so unique, I believe. Like, I really think that, um, you know, every great city, I hope, uh, has a beautiful and engaging art institution, museum that the the community can come to. But I'm uniquely proud of what we have in Memphis. And I think uh, Emily does a beautiful job in in her TED Talk to describe the role that art museums and institutions play in a community. So we'll hear that TED Talk later on in the episode. So Kathy, here we are in the studio. Welcome. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Well, tell us just quickly as, you know, in your role as director of education interpretation, what does that mean for, for you at the, <laughs> the Brooks Museum? Uh, and what do you do just day to day? Great. So um, as the director of education, I manage the education department. So our team does programs for visitors of all ages. So we work with um, elementary age kids all the way up to senior citizens. Of course, this year is a little bit different and we're we're doing things a little bit differently, but we're still trying to engage all audiences. So we have programs um, that are for school tours and we have programs for families to come into the museum. When the pandemic is over, people 
can come back and enjoy inside <laughs> art, which is our family interactive space, which is really helping kids become confident art explorers. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, in my day to day life, I go to lots of meetings and <laughs> lots of Zoom <laughs> meetings these days. Um, but, yeah, we we have a great team. Um we're also really excited to be able to offer some art therapy programs. We work with one of only two art therapists in the city of Memphis oh. to do um, programming for teens and for seniors and for adults. So we do a little bit of everything. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about the art therapy? That piqued my interest a yeah, lot. Yeah, absolutely. So we have been holding art therapy programs Gosh, I think it's been 12 years now. We actually got a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts several years ago to be able to expand that programming. So we've worked with a variety of different partners in Memphis. We've worked with the Veterans Hospital. Um, we've worked with UT has a program for kids who are being raised uh, by someone besides their parents called Relative Caregiver Program. We've worked with Youth Villages. Alzheimer's and Dementia Services of Memphis. Um, so right now um, we're working with a, a group in town called JIF. It's a juvenile intervention mm -hmm. and faith-based follow-up. Love yeah. JIF. Yeah, so. they're amazing. Been such phenomenal partners. So we've been working with them for about four years and they have a 16-week mentor program for kids and we do about eight weeks out of that 16 weeks, we meet with the kids once a week. They come to the museum, we do drawings in the gallery, we do gallery discussions about artwork, and then they make artwork kind of inspired by the things that they see and the conversations that we have. We've been working a lot on personal strengths with them. Um, it's been really, really meaningful. We actually were able to continue doing that program virtually. And we were a little nervous about, you know, how you might pull that off, but the kids were amazing. It was really a positive experience. How long have you been with the museum? Well, I started at the museum when I was still in graduate school oh, wow. at the admissions desk. So um, this year marked actually 20 years I've been there. Wow, wow. That's, yeah. yeah. I love that. It's crazy. <laughs> well, so you've, I mean, one of the things that um, I think is a real point of pride for the Brooks Museum in Memphis as, as its home is its focus on not just being a place where you come and engage in the art that is there available to you, but it truly does... Um, work to step outside of the walls of the museum and engage the community in really unique ways. And I'm curious uh, over a 20 year career with the Brooks Museum, how have you seen that change happen? How have you seen that shift happen? And and what were the sort of landmarks as, you, as we move to what what you just described in terms of community programming and education? Well, I think there's been a focus in the last 10 years on partnerships. That's been something that we've really um, done very conscientiously, and it's something that we're really proud of. We've been able to partner with well over 100 different organizations here in town in a variety of different ways. I think that's one of the ways that helps us attract different audiences, because when you work with someone like JIF, you know, you're, you're attracting kids that may not ever uh, otherwise come to the museum. Um, but it's all kinds of different organizations that I do think helps with that outreach. It helps us um, attract audiences that may not otherwise come. Um, on the topic of partnerships, I'll just mention that we've been working with Casa Teatro Bilingual Theater Group for several years, um, several years really, doing this um, Day of the Dead program. And that's another way I think that we've helped bring people into the museum that they may not otherwise see themselves there or feel comfortable there. Um, but something that Emily brought to the museum when she first started, and really it was around the time of our 100-year anniversary or birthday, 
was a program called Brooks Outside. And that is a way to have exhibitions outside of the museum. So some people may remember the red ball that traveled around Memphis. Um, And then I was able to work on a project two years ago, the um, outings project where we put up all those paper murals around town. I don't know if y'all had a chance to see that, but that was another way to get, get the museum literally out into the community and have people engage with our collection in sort of surprising and unusual ways. People, you know, might not expect to see a giant poster of a girl on a building (laughs) (laughs) downtown. So that, that's one thing that we've been trying to do is really to, you know, take the the building or take the art out into the community and really bring, you know, meet people where they are. That is such an inspiring thing, especially I feel like this year, and we have to talk about it. We have to say this year, you know, because you can't come physically (laughs) in and see all the wonderful art. Yeah. How has all of that changed in 2020 for y'all? So we we actually are open. We were closed um, for a few months, but we were able to reopen in January. So um, and we were able to actually extend an exhibition that had opened literally two weeks before the pandemic closed down the museum. We were able to keep it open through um, the beginning of September, which was great. It was a show called Native Voices. I hope some people were able yes, to see that, that show. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing for us in the education department in particular, I miss having visitors in the museum. I, I miss the kids voices and I miss having people in, engaged in our programs. But we've tried really hard to take things virtually. We've done a lot on Zoom, um, but we've tried to do some things that were maybe a little asynchronous. So we've had art making kits that people can pick up at the museum and do things at home related to our special exhibitions. Um, my colleague, Mary Webster reached out to Carpenter Art Garden and she's been doing weekly art kits for them as well as little videos of instruction on how to do the different activities. And so the kids can go to the Carpenter Art Garden and pick up those packets and watch her videos on Facebook. So that's just some of the ways that we've been trying to keep people engaged with the the art and the collection, but also connected, you know, having a people be connected to the museum. I feel like speaking of like keeping that connection earlier in 2020, your chalk fest. So originally we were like, is it, is it not? And then it all got moved outside. And so everybody got to like engage together again. So tell me a little about that. Well, that was, you know, that literally was the week that the museum closed. So we were planning chalk fest for that Saturday and then we ended up closing the museum on Sunday. So what, you know, in an effort to try to switch gears really, really quickly, um, we decided that that would just be, you know, a social media kind of um, experience. So people, a lot of families have chalk at home Mm -hmm. and do chalk art with their kids on a normal basis anyway. So it was a great way to get people to make some art, to be outside. You know, the weather was changing and it was starting to get a little warmer and people were able to make art and then share it on our Facebook page and our Instagram page. We actually even had a little contest. Yes, I loved it. Yeah, it was really fun. If people don't have chalk before, they certainly do now. It's sold out of all stores. Yeah. I have a toddler and it is sidewalk chalk is, yes. Yes, it's a thing. High demand. Yes, high demand for 2020. And we're actually already planning for Chalk Fest for this year because now that we have a little bit of time to plan as opposed to having to switch gears on the fly. Absolutely. um, We have some thoughts about ways to build on the experience that we had last year. So stay tuned. Yay. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So as we, you know, as somebody who's listening might be thinking about what's coming in December, January, February, we, uh, again, we know 
unfortunately, that the uh, COVID situation probably will not be resolved at that point. So what what are ways in which people can engage with the museum whether they be families or just individuals. Yeah. So right now we're in the process of reinstalling the Renaissance Gallery in our museum. Um, so people who um, maybe haven't been to the museum in a while, come check it out. Because I think one of the things that people tend to think about art museums is, oh, I've been there. I've seen that. But this is a whole fresh approach to this particular gallery. So our curator, Rosamond Garrett, has um, reimagined that Schilling Gallery, the Renaissance space, and she's curating it as a with a focus on women. So we're calling hmm. it Power and Absence Women in Europe, 1500 to 1680. So ironically, even though the exhibition is focused on women, there are only, I think there's only one painting in the exhibition by a female artist. Yeah. So that's one of the things that's part of that absence that we're talking about in the exhibition is um, trying to shine a light on these omissions that are in museum collections and trying to rethink the way that um, we talk about art, especially from that kind of you know, historical time period. Um, so I think that'll be a really interesting exhibition and I hope people will come check that out. And then in February, um, we are hosting an exhibition called La Fishomania, the passion for French posters. So many mm. people know the artist Toulouse-Lautrec mm -hmm. and Alphonse Mucas. These are some of the, the big names. Um, but it'll be a fantastic exhibition of um, all these beautiful, luscious prints um, from the late 1800s and the early 1900s in Paris. So Ooh. definitely have to come check that out. It'll be a great show. Gosh, love that. Well, and, you know, I want to mention one other thing is that um, for Christmas, I know people are starting to think about Christmas shopping. I know I am. Um, we are doing gift memberships, and I hope yeah. people will consider a gift membership as a perfect holiday gift for a loved one and help support the museum. And it gives people a chance to come check out all of our exhibitions that we'll be having next year. The gift that keeps on giving. Exactly. Is the gift shop open right now? No, the shop's still closed. That's like, I, I've I've I've. Definitely done some Christmas shopping at the Brooks yeah. Museum gift shop. <laughs> Such a they, they have some really awesome stuff. Yes, when they're open again. Come back. I don't know what I'm going to do for Christmas shopping. This yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my own cross to bear. Well, um, well, another thing, I mean, obviously looking farther down the road in the bright future of, of post-COVID life, yes. um, we know that uh, the Brooks Museum is has announced that they will be moving from their home in Overton Park. Uh, to the downtown landscape. You guys will be the, down by the river on Front Street. Um, it looks like the construction is slated to be complete by 2025. I want that certainly could be delayed by what's happened this year. But yeah. tell us a little bit what you know about, I think this is super exciting. Obviously, Overton Park is an amazing location and central in the city, but downtown being the home to so many of our visitors who are mm -hmm. out of coming from outside of the city, um, really becoming an epicenter of, of art and culture and, uh, you know, dining, nightlife, just all those things that really um, wrap up a city's experience. So I'm excited to see you guys move downtown. I think it, it obviously, I'm sure, brings some opportunities as you're renovating a new space and what you can do with that. Um, so just tell us, what was some of the motivations behind this move and what are you personally excited about as you guys relocate downtown? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing, the motivation was that we've just about run out of space. Mm. Um, it's a we, good excuse to Yeah. <laughs> Um, we have over 10,000 objects in our collection, wow. and um, most museums show somewhere between 8 and 10% of their collections. You know, they have those pieces out on view. I think ours is something like 3%. And not only have
have we run out of space to display the works, but we're also running out of space to store the works. Mm. So uh, we just really need a bigger building. Um, I am excited because it means that we'll have brand new classroom spaces Yay. for our school tours. Of course, that's my selfish side of things <laughs> as the director of education. Um, and I'm excited about the possibility of refreshing our interactive space and building on the things that we learned from Inside Art and, you know, putting something new in place. But really, I mean, I think it's just exciting to be in a new location and to attract new audiences. Um, we are so focused and we will continue to be focused on Memphians, but we are excited about the possibility of attracting tourists and recognizing that Memphis has an amazing food scene and music scene, but there's also a really vibrant visual art scene. And we're excited to be, you know, downtown in the middle of all of that and really letting people see that this this is a big focus in Memphis is that we have these great, great cultural organizations and they're accessible for people. So, yeah, the move is definitely still happening. Um, our building committee has been meeting a lot th these last few weeks, um, trying to figure out what the next steps, you know, will be. Um, it is definitely still happening, but no real decisions about next steps have been made yet. Yeah. Well, I know that's, that's a, it's a complex project. I have no doubt. And it's been exciting to see, you know, with, um, the the closure of the Memphis College of Art yeah. and the Brooks moving, uh, you know, I think there was sort of a clamoring of, oh no, like what? And you know, even from day one, I was like, well, it's Overton Park. It is it it is such a prime location and such a uh, historic and, and it's home to arts institutions. So I I was really excited a couple of weeks back. You know, they've announced um that the Ornamental Metal Museum yeah. is looking to Rust Hall, uh, which is part of uh, this College of Art. And I believe that that is uh, established that they're going to be moving yes. there. And I think that is super exciting. And Agreed. Anyway, I, it's a whole sort of like closed door, open window situation where I feel like the, the community is really the one that, that wins in all of this because For sure. we're getting um, some revived and refreshed uh, really historic arts institutions in the city getting the opportunity to as you said, grow and change and sort of grow into what what they need to move forward in a, in a vibrant way. That's what I've told people is that, you know, don't think of it as that you're losing something because you're really not. We're, not, we're not going anywhere. I mean, we're Three moving miles, downtown, yeah. but yeah. we're not, you know, it's we're going to still be here in Memphis. And then there's going to be something cool that moves into our building. So you'll get two cool things. You'll get the Brooks in a new location with a, a brand new building and more art on view. And you'll get something cool that's going to move into um, our current building. So, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thinking about more art, I'm just curious, you know, you talked a little bit earlier um, about partnerships and how those collaborations really um, are, are how you engage in community and finding those those ways in which you can connect with communities that might otherwise not have come to the Brooks. You know, I we've had a cup, you know, at New Memphis, we talk a lot about arts and culture because it is such an important aspect of what makes Memphis a livable and lovable city. For so, sure. you know, why do you want to live here? Well, yeah, I've got a great job and I love my house, but if you don't have the the, the rich texture of this culture, um, and we've recently had a, a number of events where we brought together some leaders in the arts community to talk about that. And it's really brought it to the forefront, I think, for us to think about culture as, yes, you know, visual arts, but also all the other kinds of arts. Of course. And, and as you mentioned, the culinary scene and music and just all these things that blend together to make this really rich landscape. So how has the Brooks Museum engaged with other arts organizations, big and small, new and old? Um, and we, how do those organizations, how do those partnerships enrich your work? 
So uh, the first example that comes to mind is that we've done a lot with the Dixon. So we've had a couple of times in the last few years where we had an exhibition that was similar to an exhibition that they had. So we organized a, um, an impressionist exhibition a few years ago. And of course, that's one of the focuses mm -hmm. of their collection. So our education departments worked together and we planned our community day on the same day so that families could come to the Brooks and do an activity and then go to the Dixon and, and finish the activity there. We've done dual ticketing with them. Um, and when we had the Native Voices exhibition that I mentioned earlier, um, we actually worked with Chukalisa, which mm, is a yeah. um, really cool cultural organization that people don't always know about. It's a little bit off the beaten path, but because their focus is obviously on the Native American cultures that were based here in Memphis. Um, and our exhibition was thinking about Native American cultures from all across the country. We did a dual ticket program with them. So if you bought a ticket to the Brooks, you could go to Chukalisa for free. Or if you bought a ticket oh. at Chukalisa, you could come to the Very Brooks cool. for free. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's really important for the organizations in town to work together. We we don't want to compete with each other. You know, we want us. I think that's one of the cool things about the vibrancy of this community is that um, we are able to lift each other up and we are able to support each other and um, build off of each other's strengths. So when we had our 100th birthday, I mentioned um, in 2016, we brought in Hattie Lou, Playhouse on the Square, Opera Memphis, a whole variety of different organizations to come and help us celebrate um, and to perform at the Brooks and to help bring their art and help enhance the art that's in the museum. We do that a lot with our community days. We'll bring in different organizations. New Ballet Ensemble has come several times and performed. So yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like it's really important for us to support each other. Um, and yeah, I think it makes it makes the work that we do even richer when we can contextualize it with, hmm. you know, music or dance or something else that's related. I love that you said enhance because that's the first word that came to my mind when you were talking about it. It just enhances that experience. It makes it more robust, rounds it out, like fills it in, all the different things. It, yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. We we have a show right now that's um, worked by an artist named Evie Day, and it's um, she was invited into the New York City Opera to do something with some costumes that they were going to be getting rid of, decommissioning. And so she made these beautiful pieces that are, you know, they're opera costumes really is what they are. So for the opening of the exhibition, which was pre pre-COVID, <laughs> Opera Memphis came and some of their, you know, opera singers performed in the museum with those, uh, you know, those dresses. And it really did help contextualize it, yeah. right? And enhance that experience of thinking about these are opera costumes. And then you're able to hear the opera, you know, at the same time. So it, it really is important, I think, for us to to work with each other. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I think I think that Memphis does a really good job of this where there, you know, there is a sort of innate, like, as you said, like, are we in competition? But the reality is, if you're a Memphian who's enjoying the Dixon, you're probably a Memphian who's going to enjoy the Brooks. Exactly. And if you're a Memphian who's enjoying the Playhouse, you're probably a Memphian who would enjoy Opera Memphis. So, you know, I think making sure that we're making those connections is really vital. And, yeah. you know, I, I think one of the things that New Memphis wants to really um, trumpet is that for a city our size, for a, a mid-sized city in the United States, we have a, a real embarrassment of riches in in the arts community, and it, it's something that I, I I worry and hope that we don't take for granted. That we just assume that we deserve to have mm -hmm. a world class art museum and a world class opera and a symphony, 
when many of our peer cities don't don't have those assets. So I think making sure that people embrace the work that you're doing, that they engage, uh, that take advantage. Frankly, we should all feel really lucky. So to that end, how can people learn more about what's going on in the Brooks Museum and get involved? So definitely check out our website. Um, you know, given the virus, we've been really much more active on our social media. So Facebook, Instagram, make sure you check us out there. Um, come to the museum. I promise it's safe. We're, we're doing all the right things. We actually had this uh, health department inspector dropped in unannounced a few weeks ago, and he said that the museum was the best example he'd seen of anybody else on his route. Wow. <laughs> we got lots of hand sanitizer. So oh, yeah. <laughs> both exciting and disappointing. I know. I was, like, I was about to say yay, but then I was like, wait a second. <laughs> but what it does that mean for safe. everyone else? So, okay, yes. yeah. Brooks is safe. That's so great. come check it out. You know, the galleries are open. We've got this new installation. Um, I buy a gift membership. The all those dollars help support the work that we're doing, especially, you know, my programs in the education department. So, yeah, just uh, even following us on Instagram and Facebook is a, is a help. So, yeah. Fabulous. So is that uh, memphisbrooks.org? Uh, yes, brooksmuseum.org Brooks is our website. Yeah, brooksmuseum.org. Ignore me. <laughs> yep, brooksmuseum.org, and I'm I'm pretty sure Facebook and Instagram are also Brooks Museum. Perfect. All right. Yeah. Well, Kathy, thank you so much again. This was Kathy Doomlau. She is the director of education and interpretation at the Memphis Brooks Museum of Art. Thank you for being with us here today. We appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Expand your circle with New Memphis Embark. Let's face it, making new friends in your 20s is way harder than it should be. There's no guidebook, so let New Memphis help. Making connections is kind of our jam, and through New Memphis Embark, you'll be introduced to a cohort of more than 25 individuals that, while all very different from you, share a common goal. You're all young professionals striving to be the best you can and serve your community while also having a little bit of fun in the process. Expand your circle and apply for Embark today. Visit newmemphis.org for more information. All right, well, before we uh, go to Emily Neff's TED Talk, as we learn a little bit more about the Brooks Museum and the importance that art plays in a community like Memphis, wanted to give you a couple of quick notes about some upcoming things that New Memphis is offering to the community. On December 9th, over lunch, so from noon to one, we are hosting our final workshop of this year. Feels like it's been a long, <laughs> a long year of many workshops, but I'm super excited about this one. Um, so just to give you a little bit of context, Back in, you know, the, the dark days of April and May of 2020, as the world was changing and New Memphis was thinking about how do we really meet the needs, the changing, rapidly changing needs of the community, we decided to really tap into our network of local leaders to make sure that we are delivering best practice to everybody in the community. We're all navigating some very unique challenges, uh, whether you're uh, a nonprofit, a business, an individual, just thinking about how do we get through 2020, how do we uh, lean into opportunity? How do we work through um, the obstacles that have been placed in front of us? So we started to uh, convene basically monthly virtual free workshops. We're calling them professional development. That feels a little stuffy, but basically whether you're running a business, big or small, whether you're 
uh, an employee at a business, you're thinking about how to just move through this, uh, this environment nimbly. We convened um, some conversations with what we think are some really impressive local leaders just to glean their, their great insights, get their advice. How are they uh, mastering these challenges? So on December 9th from noon to one, we are hosting one that is leading through crisis with healthcare CEOs. And the thinking behind this was there is truly nobody better in this year to share lessons on leading through crisis than those who are at the helm of our community's largest healthcare institutions. So um, whatever challenges you think you have been experiencing in your life, your business, I promise you those who are running our hospital systems have uh, had it worse. <laughs> and they have been uh, really having to think on their feet to support their teams of, of those essential frontline workers, to make sure that they are serving as many in our community as possible, just to, to move through what has been, I mean, as we all know, just a changing landscape where you what we knew back in April and May is so different than what we know now. So leading not just through crisis, but through uncertainty, through just unprecedented challenges. So I'm very proud to say that three leaders who serve on our, our New Memphis Board of Governors have donated their time to come and share their insights with you. Again, it's free and open to the public. So the CEO of Baptist Health, Jason Little, uh, the CEO of Methodist uh, Laboner Healthcare, Michael Igweke, as well as um, the CEO of Regional One Health, Dr. Reginald Coopwood. So uh, really, truly an all-star lineup of amazing leaders who I've gotten to talk to them a few times throughout this year and have just been blown away at what they've been able to accomplish. I've been personally inspired by what, you know, the the just the resilience that they've that they've demonstrated, the way in which they've taken care of and just really supported their teams, uh, and the ways in which they have had our community's best interest at the forefront from day one. So I'm excited to talk to them. I am very proud to say that I get to lead this conversation. So I'll be asking them all the hard questions. Um, so again, it's uh, leading through crisis with healthcare CEOs, free and open. All you have to do is go to newmemphis.org. You can find our events tab, easily go to that tab, RSVP for, RSVP for the event, and you'll get a link. Uh, you can, again, enjoy the conversation from the comfort and safety of your own home, and hopefully walk away with strategies that you can employ at your own organization's Take away with insights on how changes brought on by COVID-19 will affect the future of Memphis in general and healthcare specifically. So we're going to ask them a myriad of questions. So please join us for that. Um, it'll again, it'll be our last workshop for the year. We're excited to take a little, a little break as we go into this holiday season. Um, another thing that I'll call out, a, a great way I think for you to plug into New Memphis is uh, if you enjoy this podcast, the Meanwhile in Memphis podcast, the Meanwhile in Memphis radio program on WYXR you would probably enjoy our weekly Meanwhile in Memphis newsletter. So every week, New Memphis's staff does, I think, an exceptional job of sifting through and mining the media and the news from the week to pull out those stories that really represent the progress that Memphis is making, that celebrate what's going right in our community, that just give you, I think, a really unique and important insight into how Memphis is making change and pushing forward. And if you Think of yourself and as an engaged citizen. If you want to be somebody who cares about our city and wants to make it better, I think being aware of those stories, again, if you're listening to this podcast, you're already on board, so I'm preaching to the choir, <laughs> but making sure that you have a really um, keen sense of, of how you can make change in Memphis, and that is by 
understanding who, which organizations and leaders are doing great work so that you can advocate for them, you can plug in, you can support, you can collaborate. So the Meanwhile in Memphis newsletter gets delivered to your inbox every Friday morning. Our lovely Anna Thompson, who is my co-host today, uh, she definitely, uh, I think, it has her head deep in this stuff. So every week she puts together, uh, she aggregates some news. Uh, so from this past week, we've got a couple of stories that give you a little bit of a taste of, of what the Meanwhile Memphis newsletter is all about. So Anna, tell us a little bit about, or you know, share a couple of stories that you think represent what's going well in Memphis this week. Absolutely. So when you subscribe to our Meanwhile in Memphis newsletter, like Anna said, you will get a smorgasbord of local Memphis news. So a couple examples include the new baby giraffe that was born at the Memphis Zoo a few weeks ago. And in a total Memphis move, he was named to celebrate a local Memphis basketball player. Giraffe was (laughs) born last week, or actually not, a few weeks ago, to Nicholas and Angela Kate. And zoo officials went so far as to celebrate this baby and this new addition by naming him after Ja Morant for winning the NBA's Rookie of the Year Award. So they, in a total Memphis move again, they went a little further than that. The name just wouldn't do. So they made a hype video for him. So you can go over to Memphis Zoo's website to see this hype video for the giraffe. But all of this would come right to your inbox if you subscribed to our Meanwhile in Memphis newsletter. Another example would be that two Mississippi teens became the first female Eagle Scouts for the Chickasaw Council Boy Scouts of America. So Ava Look and Aniston Murphy have been friends since they were in sixth grade, but on November 22nd, the two girls took a historic step forward together, becoming the first girls in the Boy Scouts of America Chickasaw Council to achieve the rank of Eagle Scout. So if you want to stay on top of all the headlines, big and small, just subscribe to New Memphis's Meanwhile in Memphis newsletter. And every Friday morning, you'll be in the know. Excellent. So go to newmemphis.org. Easy place to quickly drop your email. You'll be on the list. You'll get that that in your inbox every day. I just find, you know, I believe firmly in sharing affirming news, making sure that we're not just reporting on what's going poorly in our community. Um, you know, when we look at Traditional news media, oftentimes all we're reporting on is is the problems. So um, thinking about what our challenges are, which is important, but I think it's as equally important to talk about what's going well and who is solving those problems and working to to help move past those challenges. So if we're going to talk about um, crime and we're going to talk about challenges in education, we also have to be giving space to those people who are working tirelessly with great innovation to improve our public schools, to make our community safe. So that is really um, the, the motivating uh, factor behind this, this newsletter and this podcast. So we hope that you subscribe. All right, well, let's, so as, as we teased earlier, um, in addition to having uh, our, our conversation with our friend from the Brooks Museum, we're also going to share, I think one of our, our greatest TED Talks from the last five years, Emily Neff is, again, the executive director of the Memphis Brooks Museum of Art. Uh, Back when she did this TED Talk in 2016, when she took the TED stage, she was relatively new to Memphis. Um, She has, I'm not going to read her bio because it is long and impressive, and it will make me feel bad about myself, (laughs) but she is truly a superstar, a national superstar in the art world. 
She came to us from Oklahoma, I believe, um, but has, you know, served in many different communities, uh, building arts institutions and sharing her vision for how how vital uh, organizations like the Brooks are. And I think, you know, one thing that I love about doing TED Talks and producing um, this this programming every year is it gives us the opportunity to lift up a local voice. But we're always trying to isolate people who have not just a local perspective, not just somebody who says, here's what's happening in Memphis and why it's cool, but somebody who's doing something really important and interesting in our community, but has lessons that can and should be learned nationally, globally. Anybody, any smart person who's looking to build a vibrant, livable, lovable community needs to be thinking about how we integrate art into the community. So this TED Talk is titled A Certain Kind of Beauty, The Life in an Art Museum. Uh, and it's truly focused on the importance of art in every community, big or small. So I'm excited again to uh, bring you this TED Talk. Take a listen and we'll see you on the other side. You know, in a couple of weeks will be the anniversary of 9-11. And I'm reminded about how we all mourn in different ways. Many of us, we go to places of worship, we go out into our beautiful green spaces, most of us nest, holding together ever more tightly our friends and family. In the weeks following 9-11, New Yorkers, they flocked to their art museums, specifically the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Why? The answer gets to the heart of why art museums matter, why we care, and how they have become pillars of strength and inspiration in our communities. So first, we're going to need to do a little bit of Art Museums 101, um, but this is not going to be painful because we're going to do the Cliff Notes version. And we're going to start in the 16th century in Europe when the um, idea developed about museums. And we're starting in 16th century Europe in what we call Wunderkammern, or wonder rooms, or cabinets of curiosities. And I'm showing examples from the 17th and the 18th centuries. And you can tell that these are remarkable spaces spaces that combine art and science, mingling together specimens of natural history as well as artificial curiosities, and that's the name that we give to art objects that are made by humans. Now, initially, these wonder rooms were put together by royalty, and they were meant to spark curiosity, and they were meant to build foundations of knowledge, but they could also be expressions of princely power and thus a form of propaganda. Now, let's jump ahead to 1789 and the storming of the Bastille in Paris. Now, I know that this is not that famous prison. This is the Apollo Room. And it was built by the best architects, artists, designers working in France to glorify King Louis Fourteenth. The French revolutionaries they didn't tear it down. They didn't graffiti over it. They didn't cover it up. They did something much more powerful. They changed its meaning. If you go to the Louvre Museum in Paris today and you go to the Apollo Room, you're going to see the entablature over it that you see on the left. And basically what it's saying is that what was once the property of the king intended to glorify him was now the property of the French people meant to glorify them. And so 
nationalism and cultural pride is bound up and in the DNA of the Louvre Museum. Now, this is the Cliff Notes version, so we're jumping ahead to 1851 London with another model of the public art museum, the Louvre being the world's first public art museum. And this next model is called the Victoria and Albert Museum. We call it the V&A for short. And its immediate predecessor was this, the Great Exhibition of 1851, also called Crystal Palace. And this exhibition was meant to bring together the greatest in international design. And like the Louvre, democracy or a democratic spirit was certainly behind it, but it was twinned with commercial interests, the idea of stimulating and nurturing excellence in British design in bringing together people from all over the world to stoke international trade and international relations and tourism. And it was free. It was free to all people, the V&A. If the Louvre is about national identity and cultural power, the V&A is about all of that, but also making. Because what the V&A does is it brings together art from all over the world, including copies of great works of art, including Michelangelo's David, although in this version it comes with a detachable fig leaf that curators would quickly cover up the naughty bits whenever Queen Victoria was coming to pay a visit. But it was meant to nurture this idea of excellence in British design. And whereas in the Louvre, it's organized along the principles of national schools. So you have Italian art, French art, Dutch art, Flemish art. At the V&A, it's organized by medium. So painting, prints, photographs, um, glass, ceramics, textiles, clothing, so that they're emphasizing what is made and how it is made and what it looks like. Now, I hope you're wondering by now, where is Memphis in all of this? Well, at the Memphis Brooks Museum of Art, where I work, it's a combination, as it is in many art museums across the United States, of the two models that I just described to you, the Louvre model and the V&A model. And we turned 100 years ago, I think Jeff uh, referred to that in May of 2016, and I was absolutely delighted to read the birthday card um, a few days after our big party. Because what art museums do, and what they were intended to do, both at the Louvre and the V&A, they come from a democratic progressive impulse. They are meant to elevate, to refine, to cultivate, to educate, and they are meant to bind together a community. That's what museums do. And I love this, I don't know who wrote it, but it says, Brooks has brought Memphis together. A lot of people, they think that art museums are an embellishment, a garnish, a cherry on top of a sundae. But there's so much more than that. Think about it. Art museums are criti critical to a city's infrastructure. Can you think of one major city without a major art museum? Art museums bring together art and people across different time periods and different cultures. And I think that that is what people were looking for in the weeks following 9-11. But to get back to Memphis, Brooks has brought Memphis together. It stumbled in its beginnings 
and it began in the 1900s because Memphis has cultural ambitions and it emerged in the 1900s after not one but three yellow fever epidemics. And it was the brainchild of Mrs. E.A. Neely working with the Swiss-American artist Carl Guterres. They germinated this idea of creating an art museum in our beloved Overton Park. And they had children. Children were gathering together, raising money for this building by collecting recyclables, collecting paper, rags, and rubber. And so in the origin story of our museum, the city's museum, the Memphis Brooks Museum of Art, are four things. Patron, artist, children, and grassroots efforts. Although those efforts stumbled a bit in the beginning until Bessie Vance Brooks, seen here in this splendid portrait by Cecilia Bowe, gave $100,000 to the city of Memphis to create its first art museum. And this is the equivalent of about $2 million today. And they hired one of the country's very best architects, James Gamble Rogers, to build the building. And here it is, sitting in 1916 in the heart of Overton Park. And when we opened in May of, of uh, 1916, I just love this part. There was no art collection. And there was no staff to support it. But that's so Memphis, right? And so soon... <laughs> But soon it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and there is so much life in the Memphis Brooks Museum of Art. And it also, and this is important for you to know as a Memphian, is that we are the oldest art museum in the state of Tennessee. We're the largest art museum in the state of Tennessee, and we are the only art museum of the, in the state of Tennessee in the region to have art that comes from all around the world. And that's so important when we think of Memphis, a raucous river town that connects to the world historically through its waterways and now through its entrepreneurial businesses and, of course, its music, our calling card to the world. The world is rooted in Memphis and Memphis in the world, and the world is rooted in the Memphis Brooks, where you have 5,000 years of art made from 5,000 years ago to today and across all cultures so that they sort of bump up against one another, different cultures and time periods. And that's what New Yorkers, I think, were looking for um, because art connects people to different places and different time periods in a public space, in a public space of undescribable beauty. We all know that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We know that beauty changes and concepts of beauty, they change across different cultures and across time, and you can see it here. Um, concepts of women's beauty and power expressed in a 16th century Nigerian mask and a 15th century portrait of a woman. Or at the Memphis Brooks, where I work, the quilt, the pattern, the shape and form of a quilt that's made in G's Bend, Alabama, and it looks very similar, but its meaning is quite different from the form, shape, and color of Joseph Albers' homage to the square. The former about family, about passing on knowledge from groups of women to their daughters, about limited resources, and about the universal need for warmth and protection. And then the other one, this kind of relentlessly scientific investigation of color and form. So we know that beauty resides in certain kinds of objects, certain kinds as in varied and different from one another. But we also know that there is certainty 
in the idea of beauty itself. That no matter what happens, humans will make beautiful, amazing, authentic objects. Now, I want to end with a story. And I was working at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston in 2004, and one day at work I got a phone call from a member of a sorority, and she had been helping Hurricane Katrina evacuees out of New Orleans temporarily relocate in Houston, and she wanted to bring by one of these refugees to the museum. And at the time, we had an installation of artworks by African-American artists from the permanent collection on view. And we also had um, works of art that dealt with the theme of civil rights on view. And of course, this is an, an image that you know well by Memphian Ernest C. Withers of the 1968 Memphis Sanitation Workers' Strike of 1968. But completely by coincidence and on loan temporarily was this painting from the Norman Rockwell Museum. I know we think of him as, as an illustrator, but this was the original painting and it's about three by five feet. And it's called The Problem We All Live With. It's dated 1963, it was published in Look Magazine in 1964 and based on an event that happened in New Orleans in 1960. And the way Rockwell has framed this is it's really from the point of view of the child. And the child is Ruby Bridges, and she's walking to school. And flanked in front of her and behind her are U.S. Marshals, white, so large, so towering, we don't even see their heads. And in the background, you see a tomato splattered against the wall, its dripping juice clearly reminiscent of blood. This is a powerful condemnation of racism. The problem we all live with, as the title says. And so we were waiting in the gallery for our visitor to arrive, and she turned the corner, and she saw the painting. And I rushed over to help support her, because it looked like her knees were buckling. It was Ruby Bridges' mother, Lucille Bridges. She was a Hurricane Katrina evacuee, She's the one who in 1960 stood up and who sent her daughter to a formerly white public school. And she immediately said once she recovered that she had never seen the real thing, the real painting before. She knew it only from a print that the artist had signed and given to her as a gift. But the real thing, the painting, three by five feet, had a kind of immediacy and visceral quality that the print lacked. She was stunned. And then the U.S. Marshals came. They heard that the painting was on loan at the museum. They read in the papers that Mrs. Bridges was in Houston. And they wanted to hold a meeting in front of the painting. They wanted to bear witness. And so they did. After all, as one of them said to me, a print of this painting is in U.S. Marshal offices all over the country. And then, completely out of the blue, a man raised his hand and said that he had been judicial clerk to Judge Skelly Wright, the Fifth Circuit judge who had executed the order to desegregate public schools in New Orleans in 1960, and that this man had helped to draft. It was an amazing gathering of witnesses to history, 40 years after Ruby Bridges walked to William France Elementary School in New Orleans, as we were all grappling with the aftermath of Katrina, the levee breach, and the devastation 
all along the Gulf Coast. So art, public space, and the people to activate and animate it and give it meaning. That is life in an art museum. Thank you. water new ideas and help them grow. From the invention of the modern grocery store and overnight shipping to today's entrepreneurship boot camps, Memphis is known as an innovative city and a maker city. Your bright idea might just be what we've been waiting for. There's a lot to celebrate about our city. Visit newmemphis.org to turn your love of Memphis into action. All right. Well, that was Emily Neff's TED Talk. Um, Thank you very much for listening to Meanwhile in Memphis this week. We're so glad to have you with us. We appreciate you taking the time to learn more about our city, to learn more about New Memphis. We appreciate it. Um, I will, one thing that I I don't mention enough, but as the president and CEO of New Memphis, I should probably mention more. We are a nonprofit. That means that we don't make money. We ask for money. Uh, We believe deeply in our mission to develop, activate, and retain top talent for a more prosperous future for our city. It inspires everything that we do, including this podcast. So if that is important to you, if you think having great leaders in every corner of our community whether they are leading with excellence from our classrooms or leading with excellence from our boardrooms. If that's that's something that you understand to be vital to our city's future, I encourage you to make a gift. It is the season of giving. It is that time of year when all of us who work in nonprofit take our hats off humbly and say that we can't do our work without you. And it really has never been more true than this year of our Lord 2020. So um, I would ask you to invest in the most important resource that our city has, it's people. People are what power great organizations and successful cities and people are our business. Um, So we are, again, working every day to improve our city and ourselves. Uh, We want to make sure that your support will go directly to transforming Memphis for the better. It means that we can invest in a young professional who needs to take their next step into leadership, a college student who's looking to launch their career in Memphis and needs the support of our community, a local teacher who needs to be resilient in their work in the classroom. Um, So we are here to support all of you and we hope that you will return the favor. Go to newmemphis.org forward slash donate. Just go to our homepage, you will see a magnificent and prominent donate button as any good nonprofit website should have. Any amount that you donate is hugely, hugely appreciated, whether it be $500 or $5,000, every single cent, make sure that we can continue our mission next year. We appreciate you deeply. If you enjoy this podcast, show us with uh, a couple of bucks and it would mean a ton to us. Again, that's newmemphis.org. Go to the donate button. We very much appreciate it. Again, we hope that you can join us on December 9th for our conversation with healthcare CEOs. I promise you will walk away both inspired and hopefully with armed with some information that will help you be more successful in your day-to-day life. Uh, Anna, anything else that I've missed today? 
I just think this year it's super important that anything that you love about our city that you give back to. Um, as Anna mentioned, it is the season of giving and now more than ever, it is important that every member of our community, um, if you want to see it around in 2021 and beyond, that you um, that you give and give back to the individuals and organizations who are giving to you and who make our community so vibrant. Here, here. Um, I've certainly, you know, especially I will say if, if, if you have been a fortunate person uh, in the world this year who has not been directly impacted financially by the COVID-19 crisis, still have your job, you're earning those bucks, um, this is the time to, to remember that so many in our community have been impacted, and whether that is donating to a deserving nonprofit, ahem, ahem, um, or, you know, we hope shopping our local businesses, um, safely getting food from our local restaurants, so important, and, um, you know, we hope both enjoyable and gives you that that lovely glow of having done something wonderful for Memphis. So. With that, we will leave you for this week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Meanwhile in Memphis. Anna Thompson, thank you for sitting in with me this week. Thank you for having me. All right, we'll see you next week, Memphis. Meanwhile in Memphis is brought to you in partnership with WYXR, produced by New Memphis and hosted by Anna Mullins Ellis and Christy Mullen. For more information, please visit newmemphis.org. Audio for this show is recorded and produced by the OAM Network. For more information, please visit pod901.com.